0: On this episode, we talk to Dr. Sarah Wickham, a midwife, best-selling author, speaker, and researcher. Sarah is the director of the Birth Information Project. She divides her time between speaking, writing, facilitating online courses, creating resources, and undertaking consultancy services for midwifery and health-related organizations around the world. Today, we are discussing all things anti-D. Who discovered it, how it's made, what monkeys have got to do with anti-D, the limitations in the research and where we are at in current maternity practice. It's a jam-packed show. Plus, Rachel and Sarah discuss their, mm, let's say, unusual hobby of being guideline detectives and also why Rachel is scared of orangutans. Sarah's passion is getting good information out so women and families know what the evidence is and know what they want to do. This episode is both wonderfully informative and full of discoveries you've probably never heard before and, of course, some laughter along the way. So go on then, get your lug holes ready. You're in for a treat. I'm Katie James and this is the midwives cauldron podcast each episode i'm joined by my incredible co-host dr rachel reed listen in as we hubble bubble toil and trouble our way through aspects of womanhood midwifery birth and lactation so go on subscribe now and hear us on your favorite podcast host
1: Good morning. good morning. Hello, good morning, good evening. How are you? I'm very excited about Rachel Reed's Instagram swipe up link. Ah, I know. Ah. <laughs> I made a story about it. Oh did you? Oh <laughs> well, I saw your story from yesterday, Katie. I don't know, I can't remember why. I don't know why it came up, but I saw your story and I was like, right, I'm so gonna you're in my stories today, Rachel um celebrating because obviously we are on the podcast to chat about rachel Reed's. the best rachel Reed's instagram swipe up link
2: that's exactly why you're i'm here. so excited i still
1: remember the a conversation about it love this
2: sarah that's the best <laughs> my problem is sarah i was just saying like it's all very exciting but i actually haven't got time now to work out what i do with the swipe or how to use the swipe so that's going to have to be next week so i'm going to have to just like put my celebration on pause <laughs>
1: and let everyone else do it for me. did you tell Katie the very first conversation we had about it and you were really sad yes because
2: I thought I was trying to work out to get a swipe up and you kindly informed me that I wasn't important enough to have a swipe
1: up <laughs> say that I so didn't say you weren't important enough you said to me can you please tell me how to do that cool swipe up thing that you do in your stories I can probably even find the message. And I said, "I'm really sorry, but you can't do it because you need about ten thousand followers." And <laughs> she did tell me this story. She, well, I said, "I'm really sorry, but you just stop trying because you can't." She's like, "I can't find the button to do the swipe up. thing They haven't given it to you yet. I'm really sorry. I'm just so happy that you've got it now, though." you watch I'll be swiping up everything I shall be honestly I'll be cheering you on every step of the way I'm beside myself with the excitement that you've got a swipe up link yeah it's not the fact that it's 10,000 it's the swipe up yes exactly <laughs> It
0: is. you're the person I referred to in my little video when I said and Rachel was angry because she was like and I can't get this bloody swipe up and Sarah's then told me that I'm not important enough because I need 10,000 and I'm not important enough. And so when I said she was angry and there was someone quite famous who might be coming on our podcast, it was you.
1: (laughs) That's who I was talking about. For the record, I absolutely didn't say she wasn't important enough. (laughs) (laughs) I just said you you don't have enough (laughs) followers there is let's just let's just be really clear here there is absolutely no correlation between number of followers and importance in the world (laughs) this is is a really important important thing we need to know about so cool so we're going to do a whole podcast on your instagram yep yeah in fact that's it
2: thanks sarah for coming on the podcast
0: Oh Sarah it's just such a joy to speak to you and have you on the podcast with us and it's so lovely to meet you as well.
1: Well it's lovely to meet you too and thank you for having me I've been listening to the podcast so I'm very excited to be here.
2: So Sarah welcome to the Midwives Cauldron I am so excited to get you on we've talked about this for some time and you know you let let me first of all tell you Sarah because you probably don't know how Um... I first met you (laughs) so I had followed you I'd followed you from a student midwife and I'd followed your writings and when I came to Australia you were coming to Brisbane so this must have been about 2004 five ish and you're coming to do a day workshop in Brisbane and I drove all the way down to Brisbane and I got there and I was a bit raggy because it was a bit early and I couldn't get parked and came in and there's you setting up and I just thought to myself right how is she gonna pull this off and keep everybody interested for an entire day with just her (laughs) and and you did and it was amazing and I went away like that going this woman is absolutely fantastic so it's been really lovely to then get you to know you as a friend and a mentor many years later um And have you on my podcast so welcome.
1: Well thank you that's so lovely I didn't did you come and say hello to me on that day because I wish I could remember the day.
2: Oh uh, I probably wouldn't have I'm a bit of a weirdo and introvert at events.
1: (laughs) Well I'm really I'm really glad that we've got to know each other since so that's fab and thank you very much to you and Katie for inviting me on so I'm um, yeah I'm excited to be here.
0: Absolute pleasure. And it's just a real treat for me because obviously Sarah and Rachel have a a relationship and have known each other. And for me, I'm like, oh, I'm like the I'm like Rachel back in 2004. (laughs) You have been integral to so many midwives, to so many moms and families over the years with your writings, with your work and with 15 books previously. And we've brought you on to discuss Anti D explained, which is a new book that you are about to launch. And we really like this is one of those topics that we just it's it's one of those topics that it's so difficult to find more than just a brochure or an information leaflet or perhaps what the policy is in your hospital. And that's why it's so exciting and so important. The work that you do is to just give a wider, a broader look at this topic. And so it's just a pleasure to have you on and to be able to discuss a bit more about your book and why you've written it and what's in it.
1: Well, thank you. Which would you, Which of those would you like me to answer first? <laughs> why did you write it? Why did you write it? Start there. Well, I wrote it. So I, I have to start this story about 25 years ago, if that's all right. Um, About 25 years ago, two women... Asked me the same question within a just a few weeks of each other. And the question were pregnant women, and I was working as independently as a midwife, and they both said to me, Do I really need anti D? They were rhesus negative. Do I really need anti D when I have my baby? And if I don't have anti D, what's the chance that I'm going to become sensitized without it? Mm. And, and I didn't know the answer to that question. Um, and so like many midwives do, I said, well, I'll go and see if I can find the answer to that question. But it was actually extraordinarily difficult to find the answer. And, and one reason was that, as, as Katie said, there really are just leaflets around and there there weren't books. But also it's going to be possibly hard for people who are younger today to imagine. But 25 years ago, you couldn't Google things and just put something in and find out a research paper if you wanted to find out the answers to these questions you had to go physically to the library yes and I was working as a midwife in a relatively rural area at the time and that was quite an undertaking and you know one had to go to the library and dig around in all these dusty yellow old medical journals um and so I couldn't find the answers immediately for these women and so About a year later, I ended up doing a master's degree. And when I needed a research topic, I remembered this conversation or these conversations and went, I'm going to go and look at that. I'm going to go to the library. I was by that time, I was living in an area with a really good medical library. (laughs) And I said, I'm going to go and see what I can find out. And so, I mean, I'll try and shorten the 25 years in between. But but I I wrote about anti-D at the time. I did some research looking at what holistic midwives um, knew and thought about anti-d because when I went to the medical research I found that I could get some of the answers but but there were some really big gaps in our knowledge in what we knew so I did some research at the time both in looking at what the medical research could tell us and also what what midwives knew and midwives theories about this I I wrote a couple of articles because again 25 years ago You couldn't just put something on Facebook, which didn't exist and say, hey, who wants to come and talk to me about anti-D? I actually wrote a couple of articles in midwifery journals um, with the help of the editors and said, if anybody knows about this or has thought about this or has done any research, please come and talk to me. Please get in touch. Um, And so that was really how my, my research began. A publisher saw those letters and was interested in my research And in 2001, they'd approached me, I published my very first book ever, which was called Anti-D and Midwifery, Panacea or Paradox. And it was about what I'd found, because I knew that more people had those questions, um, but didn't know where to find the answers. So that was my very first book. And as you said, Katie, I've in another sort of depends how you count my books I've written another 14 but actually I've written if you count the fact that two or three of them have been updated several times you know it's kind of even even more than that but that it feels a bit like cheating to say it's more um but so I've written lots of other books and over the years people have kept saying will you update the book on Antid?" d and yes yes I will one day but it one day didn't come until 2020 and the pandemic came along and at mm-hmm. that point the stars all aligned because the book that i was writing in 2020 i realized i had to put on hold for various reasons and and what also happened was it was the 2020 was roughly the the it it was the 20th anniversary of my first book and it was the 50th anniversary of anti-d being brought in as an intervention so that's what i mean when i said like it's like the stars aligned and I was like okay so like lots of other people I am here in lockdown I'm a locked down extrovert I'm really bored um so I decided that I would rewrite well actually it's not a rewrite I shouldn't say that I would I would write a new book the first was very much about my research this book anti Explained is much more it's like one of my other books is Group B Strep Explained but like that and my Inducing Labour and Vitamin K books it's very much written for parents and professionals because I'm explaining everything for for somebody who doesn't know anything about it. So we go right from the beginning and then we get into, you know, what, what are the complexities as well? So there we go. That was a very long story. But that's how the book came to be written. That's the story of the book. It's been 20 years in the writing and it's here. We'll be right back.
0: I just wanted to pop into your luggles and tell you about my brand spanking new podcast, The Feeding Couch. This podcast ain't just designed with pregnant women or new parents in mind, but also for all of us working in the space of birth work. This is the podcast where I hand the mic over to a different mum, dad, parent, or even grandparent to take us on their feeding journey. Every story matters. It's often through hearing others' experiences where we find our own inner knowledge, strength and courage. Listen in to hear the stories told of triumph, challenge, heartwarming, tear-jerking, fist-pumping and how we each deal with our venture into this new world emotionally, socially and physically. Whether you're a student, a newbie midwife, doula, lactation exam prepper, or just hungry for more knowledge, these stories will also give you a backstage pass to the Global Lactation Clinic. Whether you're pregnant and seeking information or supporting those on their journey, I can't wait to see you on the couch with me soon. Oh, and a little favour, your reviews on Apple Podcasts mean the world. They're like magic beans that help spread the podcast out for those who need to hear it. Let's make this something amazing together. Wow. That's amazing. I love it. And the stars did align. 50 years anniversary of Auntie Dee being um, brought in and 20 years since your first book.
1: Bloody awesome. It's perfect it like timing. A, an anniversary.
2: So that leads us perfectly into what is Auntie Dee? Why was, why
1: was it brought in? Well, so okay, anti D. So there's two different kinds of anti D. When we talk about anti D, we are referring, we might be referring to a substance made in the bodies of rhesus negative or the blood of rhesus negative people. I'll come to that in a moment. But we also might be talking about a medicine made from blood, which has the same name. My in my book I'm I'm talking about both, but I'm really referring to the medicine that we offer to rhesus negative women who might have been exposed to rhesus positive blood if they've got a rhesus positive baby during pregnancy or birth. So for instance if um, when a woman gives birth or if she has an accident that bumps her tummy or there's some sort of invasive procedure in pregnancy it's possible that some of some of her baby's blood can enter her bloodstream and those are the situations in which anti-d the medicine is offered but i mean i don't know would you like me to back a bit and just explain about the rhesus factor because most people have so we can classify our blood according to blood groups most people know about you know the abo system of blood group typing but another way of classifying our blood is human blood is is whether somebody has the rhesus factor or not um and most people have this the numbers of people the percentages of people that have the rhesus factor do vary a bit according to ancestry you know where whereabouts in the world your ancestors came from um so mm. about 15 percent of People of European descent are Rhesus negative and 85% are Rhesus positive. But if you go, if you go into Africa and look at people of African descent, it's more like eight percent. That's an overall figure. That's looking at an entire continent. It does vary a bit in in the country. In Asia and in you you'll probably know this, um Rachel, because in some populations of in the Maori, in New Zealand, in some Pacific populations, it's one percent really really rare being ne- being rhesus negative so the people who are rhesus positive we don't worry about them because they're not going to have a problem in this situation but if somebody who has rhesus negative blood encounters rhesus positive blood in their bloodstream so for instance i mean this never happens nowadays because now we know about it but in the past before we understood this occasionally somebody who was rhesus negative would accidentally be given a blood transfusion of rhesus positive blood. Um, But also, as I said before, there are situations where if a pregnant woman is rhesus negative, her baby's rhesus positive blood can sometimes enter her bloodstream. Now, when that happens, she can make antibodies against it. And and those antibodies are the first kind of anti-D that I mentioned, the antibodies, the anti-D antibodies that are made in, in the woman's bloodstream. Now, I mean, the making of antibodies is, of course, generally a very fab thing to do. It's a very useful mechanism. We want to make antibodies against viruses, for instance, very topical that we don't want. We want antibodies against those things. Um, And and it's also really important for me to just mention that if a woman who's pregnant makes antibodies or even if she makes them before pregnancy, as I said, but but that is very, very unusual. If she makes antibodies against the rhesus factor, and then she later becomes pregnant with a rhesus positive baby. That's when we can get problems. Because those antibodies are now circulating in her blood, the anti D antibodies, and they can enter her baby's bloodstream. And if the baby is rhesus positive, that can it can cause a range of problems, which can sometimes become serious. So, and, and that's why anti D, the medicine was, um, was, came about, that's how it came about in the first place, because we were trying to solve those problems. So, I mean, there's lots of science behind this, which I know we don't have time for today, but the upshot is that scientists realise that if rhesus negative woman is at risk of her baby's blood, her rhesus positive baby's blood mixing with hers, but if we give her an injection of a medicine made from blood that contains the anti-D antibodies from other people, she won't then make her own anti-D antibodies against it. And and that means that she won't have those antibodies if she becomes pregnant in the future with a recess-positive baby, that baby isn't going to be at risk. And
2: I think that's a really important point, Sarah, that a lot of people don't know, which is that anti-D is made from blood.
1: Absolutely. And when I first started talking about this, um, which, as you now know, 25 years ago, so few people knew that. Um, it, it really, really shocked me. Um, I mean, I, 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 I can't remember whether I knew it at the time. I think I found it out very quickly when when women were asking me this question. But um, that's one of the things that shocked me the most at the time um, is that I would talk to rooms full of, of midwives and, and often doctors and they wouldn't have a sense of that. And One of the things that really struck me at the time in particular is that if you go, if you're working, for instance, as a hospital midwife and you go up to a woman with a bag of blood and say, well, so, you know, we've discovered that your iron levels are quite low. And so we're gonna recommend that you have a blood transfusion, is that okay? Now, not everybody will question it, but actually in my experience, tell me if you would agree or disagree, Rachel, Quite a lot of women will say, well, do I really need that? Mm. There is a reluctance um, to to have blood unless it's necessary. And that's a very understandable reluctance. But what I was seeing at the time as a midwife, and and I talked to many midwives and they said the same thing, is that when you go to a woman with, instead of a bag of blood, you go with a syringe, which contains yellow fluid, that's the anti-D. And you say, well, so your baby's research positive, um, you know, shall I give you the anti-D now? women weren't saying the same thing they were saying okay and so that really made me question say well do women know that this is made from blood and and no I think that is changing now I think that I've seen that change over the past 25 years um so I think there is more awareness of that now and I think um I think women women get told that now but absolutely at the time that was a huge issue and it's not just one person's blood is it no, absolutely. So anti-D is made from pooled blood, which means that the blood. And so, I mean, to become a blood donor for anti-D, you have to be a pretty cool altruistic person because you have to be rhesus negative, And then you have to let the people at the blood transfusion service or wherever you go to donate your blood. You have to let them give you somebody else's rhesus positive blood in order that you become ice immunized so that you make the antibodies that your blood is then going to protect pregnant women from making. And just, I'm having such a fun oh time watching Katie's face. Oh, like, my mind is blown. I had no idea about that. Did you not? Hold your hat on.
0: Hold, hold me labia. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best I comment everyone's ever been. Brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. That's in the that's in the podcast now Okay, forever.
1: so we're going to so we're going to get we're going to get a cord and reference in now so wait for this i've only just thought of this so so we need these lovely people and actually there was i saw a couple of years ago there was a guy in australia who was being celebrated because he was he had over probably most of the 50 years that anti d's been available donated so much blood that's gone to make anti d so i don't I, there are loads of questions that we need to ask about anti d it's very complex I absolutely think that women and families should get loads of information and that's, you know, that's why I write about it. But I don't want to downplay at all how really quite amazing this is as well. So you, we have these altruistic donors that allow the nice people at the blood transfusion service to inject them with somebody else's rhesus positive blood so they can make the antibodies and then their blood donation is taken. Um, Now, I mean, what I'm about to say is not exactly what happens um, and you may well get the blood transfusion people ringing in. But in simple terms, what then happens is that all the blood donations taken from these lovely rhesus negative people who've been given rhesus positive blood. So they make their own anti-D antibodies. They're all sort of into this big cauldron at the, <laughs> the blood transfusion So Did you like that? Love it. Nice. They're all sort of put in this big cauldron. It's very clean. It's all, you know, it's all very sciencey and metallic and whatever. And, and it's pooled together. That's the that's what I'm trying to get across is this anti-D is made from pooled blood. The, the blood donations are mixed because it's a very complex process to make it. And they need to spin the blood and do all sorts of clever things that I'm not going to begin to pretend to understand. But yes, yeah, so to answer Rachel's question... When you have a blood transfusion, you're generally receiving blood from one donor that has been cleaned in its own little mini cauldron, um, you know, and, and made into one blood, one bag of blood for your blood products. With anti-D, it's, it's pulled together. That's the process of how it's made. So, yes, it's we call it pulled blood. Um, I mean, what I will say is that I know that there is a concern and it, there's a very real concern about the fact that it is, that it, A, is blood and B, it is pulled blood. So people say, but I'm then taking on the risk of lots of people, and um, you know, lots of other people and what might be in their blood. And yes, and it's a really tricky one, this, because it's really important to say that there is absolutely a risk of viral transmission from anti-D as with any other blood product. And it's important that we're honest about that. But it's also, I think, important to say that the the people that work at blood transfusion centers around the world are doing their absolute best. And they are testing for everything they can test for and they're putting blood through all sorts of procedures. So that that risk exists. I'm not going to deny that exists. And I think it's important we know about it. I also think it's important to recognize that, you know, there's some fabulous science going on to protect people as much as possible.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about you know we've talked about the controversy of of why why we need to know more about anti D can we weigh up the risks in terms of if a woman decides you know this feels like a risky thing for me to take I've now found out that this is pooled blood I don't like the idea of that but what is the risk of her having um transmission from her baby into her blood and potentially making antibodies for that next pregnancy. So how do we weigh up those risk factors?
1: Well, it's really hard to answer that, Katie. And one of the reasons it's really hard is that that the the mixing of blood can happen in different situations. So when anti-D was first kind of discovered, I mean, it wasn't discovered, it was made, you know, when the anti-D programme first started, The concern was about getting, the the concern was about sensitization that was happening around and after birth. So the first time, the first point at which anti-D was offered was postnatal anti-D. So when a rhesus negative woman has given birth to a rhesus positive baby and we know we we check after the baby's born so that we know that the baby is rhesus positive because of course, if a, a rhesus-negative woman gives birth and the baby's rhesus-negative, there's no problem. There's, there's, That's not an issue. Yeah, so yeah. the the kind of the baseline intervention was when a rhesus-negative woman gives birth to a rhesus-positive baby. And this was really the question that those women were asking me. And And so in order to try and find the answer to that, I had to go back to the original clinical trials in this area and look not just at, I mean, to... To some extent, I wasn't interested in what happened in the women that got anti-D. I mean, I can tell you what happened is anti-D is extremely effective. We don't know exactly how it works, but we know that it does work. We know that if you give somebody anti-D in that situation, they're very, very unlikely to become sensitized. So it works. It's really effective. That isn't in question. But the question that that you've asked and, and the question that women are asking is, well, what about if I don't, what about if I decline the anti-D? And, and what we know from those trials is that the, the women in the control groups who declined the anti-D, I mean, when I had been, I'm going to say, led to believe as a student midwife that if you didn't have anti-D um, and you were resus negative and you'd had a Rhesus positive baby, that you, know, you were almost certain to become sensitised. And and then when I went to the studies, I found that actually that that wasn't true at all. Um, In in the the studies, in those original clinical trials, most of the women in the control group who didn't have anti-D, about at least 85% of them weren't becoming sensitive. So about sensitized, sorry. So about one in seven, it depends on what data you look at. The reason I'm slowing down and hesitating is that actually... The data that we've got, the research that we've got, isn't of brilliant quality. And this is an enormous problem I actually spend a lot of time talking about in the book. So these clinical trials were done 50 years ago. So we we have to be nice. It's like expecting a film that was made 50 years ago to have the sort of special effects that we can do today. You know, (laughs) we, we have to accept that 50 years ago, people didn't know then what they knew now. But when you look at the quality of the trials, um, and the fact that they weren't effectively randomized, um, there was no blinding. So everybody knew, the women knew whether they were having NTD or not, the clinicians knew. Now, I mean, I'm not so worried about blinding in a trial of a drug as I am in, you know, a trial of something where knowledge of what you're going to have might affect your outcome because of, you know, what's going on in your head around that. But, there are some issues with those trials. So this is where it gets starts getting complex and uncertain, because we can say from those trials um, that, you know, around between one in seven and, and one in ten women become sensitized after birth, who are rhesus negative, who've had a rhesus positive baby without anti D, within the context of the clinical trials that were done 50 years ago. That's what we can say, which doesn't doesn't completely answer the question tell me Katie you're, I'm I'm really enjoying watching your face and I'd love to know what you're going to say now <laughs> I'm just I think I'm just absorbing
0: the fact that I love your analogy with the with the CG of uh, f- films 50 years ago and and thinking about research in that context is fascinating um just yeah that I mean I had no idea obviously I'm I moved into the breastfeeding world uh, a long time ago and so sort of anti-D hasn't really been on my radar so just knowing these kind of statistics that it feels like it's an area that we've got a certain amount of evidence we've got a certain amount of research and we've got positive results but also it seems quite vague in in the fact that we did a lot of this research such a long time ago, and then it's not really been picked up or looked at for another long time. And that for me is like, gosh, why is there not this interest in this? And I think surely there is because women are now asking those questions. You know, there's massive debates about vaccinations. The more we find out about things, obviously, the more questions there are. So, why is this not really being looked at further or why are we not repeating those trials with better controls and and using
2: you know the more modern way of of doing things what's also interesting is so you were talking about those studies those studies were done post birth so that was after the birth event if you want to call a birth an event um but you know from when i first started practicing midwifery we, we would not offer anti-D unless the woman had, you know, fell down the stairs or something, was in a car accident or had a bleed. And then we would test the baby after birth and then offer it if the baby was positive. And then when I came to Australia, it, it had moved. I don't know whether it had in the UK, but it had gone to, no, every woman in pregnancy who is racist negative gets anti-D in pregnancy. Never mind what the baby is. The baby could be negative. That only changed for me
1: when I moved to Australia as well. But it it is now. I mean, it came in. I'm going to see if I can flip through my book. I think it was, oh, I don't want to say without double checking. I'm going to tell you the year it came (laughs) in in the UK. There was a, there was a, so, I mean, there were several questions in there and I'm going to try and remember all of them, but you're welcome to like remind me if I haven't. Um, 50 years ago, the first intervention was about offering D postnatally. Um, And as I said, D was very effective and that did cover it prevented most cases of sensitization. But some women still got sensitized because birth isn't the only situation in which the baby's blood can cross into the mother's bloodstream. The second situation, I mean, chronologically, what then happened as you as you've both sort of talked about is that when if women had an invasive procedure in pregnancy or a car accident where there might have been some sort of small injury to the placenta, a bit of blood may have transferred then they were offered anti-d and, and we talk about these sorts of situations as potentially sensitizing events so anything that happens and birth is also a potentially sensitizing event we're we're only talking about a tiny amount of the baby's blood in you know the, the scientists refer to this as maternal hemorrhage and part of me wishes they wouldn't because when we hear the word hemorrhage we tend to think of like postpartum hemorrhage or the sort of hemorrhage that you need on a you know at the end of a police tv drama you know (laughs) death in paradise sort of hemorrhage and that's we're talking about like one or two milliliters you know a really tiny amount so I think that's if you ever see the words fetal maternal hemorrhage that's what you need to remember um potentially sensitizing event is any point at which that could have happened and and so it was sensible to offer anti-d because medical procedures like amniocentesis they do carry a risk a chance of the baby's blood entering the maternal bloodstream so we should be offering anti-d at that time now whether or not the woman wants it or not that's up to her but we should be offering it because that the risk of fetal maternal hemorrhage transplacental transfusion whatever you want to call it that that chance is there but what then happened as you said is that um still a few women were becoming um sensitized and this is where it gets really controversial because depending on what kind of how you look at it um, you either believe that root offering routine antenatal anti-d in pregnancy is justified or you look at the same data which i do and go oh i'm really a bit concerned about this and I mean, I'm, I'm concerned, I, I was concerned when the conversations about routine antenatal anti D began. And the reason was that we had good evidence that the current program, where we offer antenatal anti D to rhesus negative women who've experienced a potentially sensitizing event, we had good evidence that that wasn't being followed. There were several studies that looked at what well, actually, I mean, there were different studies, but one study, for instance, looked at women who had become sensitized and then they looked back through their notes about, well, why had this happened? And in many cases, actually, there was a potentially sensitizing event, but D hadn't been offered. So what that means is that we're talking about a systems failure or a human error failure. And I'm not going to sit here and berate health professionals on an individual basis, because often this is about the systems not working the giving anti-d offering anti-d is a very complex system there are so many things that have to happen um, in order for you know a dose of anti-d to get into an individual woman but you know and it's, it's an awful thing to think about but occasionally systems fail and so what i would have done at the time when they were looking at bringing in routine antenatal anti-d is i i at the time was was calling for more work to be done on whether improving the program generally would reduce this problem rather than giving every woman or offering every woman anti-D at a certain point in pregnancy simply to compensate for what might have been failures in the current program.
0: That makes perfect Mm. sense absolutely I mean it's it's a common sense approach.
1: I mean I can also go back to your your other question though about you know what happened because you asked katie about you know why haven't we got better information and the reason is i'm going to try really hard not to sound cynical here but the reason is that 50 years ago we had a problem and the problem was this disease that was awful that we were trying to prevent and some fabulous people did some fabulous work dis- discovering and testing the answer to this problem and we discovered that anti D was very effective. And I mean it, it you know, it, it it won awards. Um it you know it it was it was truly um you know it was hailed as a as a medical miracle, you know, at the time. And so so that's what I'm saying is it really was fabulous. And I don't want to for a minute let anybody think that I don't think it's amazing because it is. The trials that I've already mentioned, the trials that were carried out originally, in, in they, were, they were carried out between about 1968 and 1971. Those trials showed two things, which I've already said. First, they showed anti-D is very effective when it's given to a rhesus negative woman who's given birth to a rhesus positive baby within 72 hours of the birth. It's It's very effective. But they also showed when you looked at the data of the control groups, as I mentioned, that not everyone's going to need it that we knew from those studies it looked i mean the, the the numbers varied and what was interesting was that some of the studies showed that it was lower that it was around seven percent of women became mice without anti-d and there were there were and there still are some really tantalizing clues because people have theorized and suggested that it might be that intervention means that sensitization is more likely or just the transfer of blood and we have no idea if that's true or not because it's not been researched so it's there as a theory so at the time when we had the results of these trials and the control groups were depended on which study you looked at but it was pretty clear that the majority of women don't become sensitized after the birth of a research positive baby even if they don't have anti-D. Well, the people that make the decisions, they had two options, really. They could either say, well, this is really interesting. Let's go and do some more studies and try and find out what makes some women susceptible to sensitization and not. Can we look and see if there are any factors in the women who became sensitized? You know, can we can we do some more crunching of of the data to see what's going on? That was one option that they had. The other option that they had was to say, "Well, anti-D is clearly effective, so let's give it to everybody," <laughs> and that's what they did, and that's what's continued ever since. You know, and, and this happens not just with anti-D, but as you know, with so many things. It's the same with vitamin K, which, as you know, I've also written about quite a lot. The actual the chance of of one healthy baby experiencing what is called vitamin K deficiency bleeding. Um, which is, you know, I sometimes think is, is like, you know, calling something a paracetamol deficiency headache. Um anyway, that's, that's another podcast. I'm going to come back another day in June. Please come back. <laughs> so great, it's
0: fascinating.
1: So the chance of a baby having, a healthy baby having a problem if it doesn't have vitamin K is really, really low, like one in 11,000. Um, but But we also know that if you give um if you give i mean I, there's but there's more nuance in that what i will say is actually if people want to look at that there's loads on my website about it so go and have a look because there's some there's some caveat there's different types of, of problems there so so what we know is that if you give vitamin k to every baby then hardly any babies have that problem and so this is the approach that western medicine takes it says oh well this works so we'll give it to everybody um and And as you know, that's what's been going on in many different areas for years. But what then happens is when women come along, like the the first two women I met 25 years ago who asked me that question, and frankly, hundreds and thousands of women and families that I've met since who say, well, I'm not I'm not entirely sure that I want to just sign up for this routine kind of medicine made from blood that I'm being offered. Um, given that you know there's clearly it's a bit complex and there's other things to know what can help me make my decision Um, and then you have to say well it's really it's really difficult because you know we we have to kind of try and gather bits and pieces of the evidence because at the time the trials were done it was decided by a group of you know white middle-class doctors Um, that we're going to go, male doctors, I should say as well, that that, that we're going to go down this route and give this to everybody rather than looking for more nuanced information that can help people make individual decisions about what's right for them. Mm.
2: And does, I've got a question, Mm -hmm. does anti-D pass, now that we're giving it in pregnancy, does it get through to the baby in utero?
1: Um. Some of it does. Yes, my understanding is that some of it um, can pass through to the baby in utero. And I mean, I've actually written quite a lot in the book about the issue with side effects with the baby because it hasn't been adequately researched. Now, again, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I think it's horrendous. I'm not I'm not going to say I think there are massive problems, but we don't have enough research on this Um, that, you know, there have been. Um, concerns have been raised in the literature and they haven't been adequately addressed. Good point to mention one of the massive paradoxes about anti D because I mean, for some people, the main the, the controversial bit about anti D is the fact that it's made from blood. So for other people, as you've just mentioned, Rachel, it's about the fact that we do know that some of the anti D given in pregnancy will will cross the placenta. We don't know about the side effects. We particularly don't know about the side effects when, depending on whether the baby's rhesus negative or rhesus positive. Mm-hmm. Now, at the moment, we're seeing in many countries the advent of antenatal rhesus testing so that women can know from usually for about 15 weeks onwards, a test can be done, which will tell you whether the baby is rhesus positive or rhesus negative, and that will help about i mean if we're looking at you i've got the data from europe if we're looking at at people of european descent that will help about 42 percent of women because about 42 percent of rhesus negative women will be carrying a rhesus negative baby and as soon as they know that they don't even have to think about this again and some people are saying well that's fabulous isn't it that's great and my answer is yes that's great for the 42 percent but i'm also (laughs) concerned about about the other 58 who still still need to make these these decisions um so so for some people it's about the fact that you know we don't know you know what what effect it has on the baby and 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 we do have studies showing we have a study that was carried out in Yorkshire in the UK that shows that there are no short-term detrimental effects on things like APGAR scores or mortality and it's great that we know that but to be honest those aren't the things that people were concerned about you know people were more concerned about long-term um you know l- long-term effects but the, the the controversial bit one of the controversial bits about anti-d for me is and I, I, I have to watch Betty's face when I say this it's the only bug that I know of that first of all is given to a person who doesn't Physically benefit from it because the, the woman herself doesn't benefit from it when it's given in pregnancy it's given to the possible detriment of another person the unborn baby who doesn't physically benefit from it An anti-d is given for the benefit of a person who doesn't yet exist and who might never exist and because even if the woman has more babies, I'm sorry, I'm laughing because I'm watching Katie's face here. Even if the woman has more babies, they might be Reese's negative, and there wasn't any risk at all. And these days, we're having smaller families. So for me, that's that's why I use the, the word paradox, and you know, when I'm talking about this.
0: Oh my god. I I mean, obviously I knew that, but I, just the way you phrase that is like. Oh, my God. I can't, I, I'm I like, what? Yeah. Wow. Very. I mean,
1: absolutely. It is the only thing. Wow. Yeah. I know. I can't think of any other drug. Um. No, absolutely. And the fact
0: that it comes with this controversy and it comes with all those things that you've just beautifully explained. And it's for this kind of what if that doesn't yet exist and could exist. Yep. But it also could exist with the babies or also
1: negative. Yeah. Um, or you might not have any future babies. And I mean, going back to the question about how can women and families make individual decisions that are right for them? Well, actually, that's one part of it is that, you know, if somebody knows for certain that this is going to be their last baby, then actually it's really worth bearing in mind that the anti-D doesn't benefit the current baby. And if you're absolutely certain that this is your last baby, then that may make the anti d decision easier. I mean, it would be remiss of me not to mention as a midwife that that then means you need to think really carefully about about contraception, you know, and and, and everything that goes along with making that decision. Um, But in the absence of really good data about what what the risks are and, you know, who does and doesn't need it, these are some of the things that that people can take into account that we do have the ability now to test a baby's rhesus group in utero. Um, And things like, you know, it doesn't, it's not going to benefit the current baby, it's only going to benefit rhesus positive future babies if they exist. And so for that reason, some people are also getting, you know, the, they, they they want to know what the father's blood group is, because that can make a difference and give you knowledge ahead of time as well.
0: That was just going to be my next question, whether we could be testing the father.
1: Well, to my, I don't know of any country where the maternity services offer blood group testing of the father just so that women can decide whether or not to have anti-D. Um, but what I do know is that the, it's actually really easy in most high income countries to find out your blood type and rhesus group by going off and donating blood because you get a nice little card that says, you know, you are a rhesus negative or whatever you are. Um, and, and so, you know, that can that can help because if, if you are the, the, the gene for the rhesus factor is recessive. So don't worry, I'm not going to do loads of science. But what that means is that if you have two parents who are both rhesus negative, they cannot have a rhesus positive baby. So if if you are rhesus negative and the the father of the baby is rhesus negative, then your baby is going to be rhesus negative and you don't have to worry about any of this stuff. You know what? I was told about that. No, I don't know what you were told about that. Tell me. <laughs>
2: Because I can remember raising this. Oh, I do know what with, you're going to say. Go on anyway. With a, a a couple, a mother who knew what the father's blood group was, and it was negative, and I was told that no, she still has to have anti D because you know women lie, yeah, and
1: he might not actually be the father. Uh, it's crazy. I mean, this was a really. I mean, it still is. It still is a thought in some areas, and I, and I. I'd really like to pick up on one aspect of that because it really frustrates me, as I can hear that it does you, that women are kind of not believed. And that's mm. absolutely something that we need to get around. Um, what commonly happens is if a woman declines anti D and says, no, it's because my partner, the father of the baby, you know, whatever, whoever is, is Rhesus negative, sometimes um, you know, they're told, well, you need to have it anyway. And of course, the thing is, nobody needs to have anything, you just say no um you know so so that that's obviously the first thing is you you never have to say yes to to any of these things so the you know my passion is about getting good information out so that women and families know what the evidence says and know what they want to do and and know that they can say no I don't want this um but yeah I mean there, there is a concern in the maternity services that well what about if the um the baby the, the woman's partner or the man that the, you know that, that that she's there with or whatever isn't the father of the baby and so what happens often is that midwives and obstetricians try and get the woman on her own just to ask that question and and i hear now and again from women who are really cross about that they say i really didn't like that but i think we also need to acknowledge that the reality is that that some women are living in situations where they're not safe and they can't be honest um in front of their partner. And so I think we just got to bear that in mind that um it, it's all about looking at the individual context, isn't it? So yeah, absolutely yeah. absolutely need to believe women and I'm not suggesting that for a moment. I do understand though why in some situations healthcare practitioners feel they just want to talk to women on her own. But what I commonly say you know to women is yes if you're rhesus negative and you know your partner's rhesus negative and it's his baby, you know, you can be really confident that your baby's going to be rhesus negative negative and you don't need to think about anti d and you don't need to answer this question but i just need to say to you if there is any chance that 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 this isn't the father of your baby then you know you need to just let me know and we'll find a way of really kind of saying that you 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 want that anyway if that's what you want because we just have this situation where not everybody lives in safety and that's mm. a really big concern absolutely i
0: i think it's a really good point and and i think it's a really it's a really valid point because um, that is the situation, that is the scenario of, of the world that we live in and the women that we see. And it is always looking at that as an individual. Um, but it's about giving that choice. But I think you've just phrased that really nicely in a way that helps us as midwives or healthcare providers to to phrase something to the women that we are working with that doesn't come across as judgmental or scary or that or any of those negative qualities. It's about, this is information. I'm here to support whatever your decision is, but I want to make sure that you know risks, benefits, alternatives, and not doing anything, and I will support that. But I want to make sure that it's safe for you as much as possible in terms of the information I've given you
1: absolutely and I mean it's all about balance and I mean this is you know this is really at the core of what I'm I'm trying to do just with everything I do really because it's none of these interventions are really really terrible nobody's going nobody's getting up in the morning going do you know what I'm going to go and disempower a few women today you know (laughs) but we but we live in a culture um, that is all about systems and you know offering things on a routine basis and that's based on bureaucracy you know so so we have all these things and so absolutely it's about questioning those things and saying well what is useful is this what i want does this work for me but it's about balance because nobody's saying that these things aren't useful ever some of them are most of them are incredibly useful when they're used appropriately it's it's the appropriate use you know and mm-hmm. and we we live in a world of course that's become so polarized you know and and on on the one hand you've got some people who are being really paternalistic about this and going everybody should have this in every situation and on the other hand you've got people that are going well I'm never going to engage or have any of this and so for me it's about getting information so that you can see that there's a there's a balance to be kind of had there.
0: Mm. Sarah you have just really unpack this and put it in such a beautiful way for the podcast like my brain is just whizzing around putting knowledge that i was told knowledge that i used and and new knowledge for me and really put it together in i think a fantastic way for us here on the podcast and i can imagine in the book it explores it in much more detail which i'm definitely doing a book plug right here and right now it needs it um by the book I'm on by the book it's bloody marvellous <laughs> right, we've got to the north of England well I'm not sure where I go to but uh, apologies folks out there for Katie's uh, love of the northeast of England um, but I just wanted to like I want to just get in and talk a little bit about both you and Rachel do a huge amount of research and writing and my god am I grateful for it and I know so many of us are but You have this kind of shared hobby of how you unpack research. And I'd love you to tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Shall I start, Rachel, and then you can jump in when you're ready? Okay, so so Rachel and I discovered a few years ago, I think at a conference in Australia, um, that we have a shared hobby of tracking backwards through obstetric guidelines to see what evidence they're based on. Because... I mean, so many evidence make these sweeping statements, You know, like X is safe or Y is recommended, whatever it is, and they have a reference beside them. But I mean, if people only remember one thing I say from this podcast, please let it be the following sentence. Just because something has a reference beside it does not mean it's based on sound, robust data. And that's why we need to be careful when we throw around phrases like evidence-based, because firstly, We need much more knowledge than just research evidence to make decisions about our lives and to practice as midwives or doctors or whatever it is that we're doing. Secondly, not all evidence is good evidence. You can find a piece of research that will show all sorts of things, but it might not be good research. And I mean, as as, as an aside, I mean, one of my passions, as you might know, is to teach people to really understand the research, to dig into it. You know, when I'm not writing books, That's what I'm doing. I'm teaching courses so that people can better understand research and not feel kind of scared by all the numbers. So, you know, when you when you go and look at the reference in the guidelines that says that X is safe or Y is recommended, you will sometimes find good evidence. But what you sometimes find is that the reference simply points you to the last edition of the guideline. So off you go. So well, I mean, off people like Rachel and I go, I don't know that this is a popular pastime. I suspect it's kind of a niche thing. Um, anyway. Policy detectives
0: on the scope. Oh my god! There needs to be a theme tune for this. Totally. Can you I'm put one on over the top? Up. I'm gonna. I'm, yeah, I'm gonna just make it up and then I'll edit it in. Do
1: do 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 do. Sarah and Rachel on the case. Do 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 do. do. Fabulous. Yeah. Okay, so so off we go. So so we follow the reference back, and you go to the previous guideline, um, and there's the same statement saying X is safe or whatever. And, and there's a nice reference, but but then, but it's the guideline before, um, and so you go, you f- and, and basically the short version of this story is that you keep going backwards in time. You go and find all these old guidelines. Um, and it doesn't just happen in guidelines. It happens in papers. I mean, I found one in a little bit like this in the Cocoon Review in Acti. I'll tell you about that in a moment. One of two things happened. You either get back to the first version of the guideline and you discover that it was written in 1987 and there are no references at all, but that hasn't stopped anyone from stuffing every subsequent edition of the guideline up like a house of cards, or you can't find the first guideline because actually it was an information leaflet that, that some doctor wrote or that some company put out and they, they kind of sort of found, they, they estimated the number but now you've spent hours looking this stuff up and, and you can see that if the evidence for this statement existed, you would absolutely have fallen over it by now because you've now spent hours trawling through this, you know, on the Internet these days or in the library. So, I mean, yes, it's, a, it's an extraordinarily weird hobby. I will admit that. But it's incredibly useful as a hobby um, if you make a living by helping people to understand why guidelines aren't always as evidence based as people make out. Um, I mean, there there was a a study which I talked about, talk about in the book, but I talk about on my website as well, where a group of obstetricians and medical students in London, actually friends of mine, went to look at the green top guidelines, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists green top guidelines to see how many of them were based on how many of the recommendations were based on the highest level evidence. And it was nine to 12 percent. I know, but I want I want to stop because I, I really want I want Rachel to share um her what she does with the guidelines as well and what can you talk about that because I love
2: it. Well I I do the same thing and I can't I think I kind of got hooked on that when I was doing my PhD and you were trying to find every bit of literature about everything. But I still do it and I've actually been extremely mean to the midwifery students and they've had an assessment where they've had to pick midwifery practice and do exactly that, find a guideline and then track back to find The evidence for that guy, that recommendation, and then assess the evidence. And as you say, often, you know, sometimes you find oh, there's a Cochrane review and it actually does support the thing that's just been written. But more often than not, you kind of head into this, you know, you go from Queensland Health, for example, um, guideline, and then that will reference NICE, and then NICE will reference itself from years ago, and then that will reference the World Health Organization and the World Health Organization just writes a statement with no reference. So you don't actually get to a reference okay. or so that's what happens, um, I think, with the giant examination. That, well, that's where I ended up. Oh, no, with the vaginal examination, we ended up on research that was actually not about whether or not it was it was a it was a good assessment, but rather research that said that doing it more times didn't interfere with labor progress and doing it less times, which doesn't support doing it. And the same with fetal heart rate monitoring, when I try to work out, what, you know, what is the underpinning evidence here for listening to the fetal heart in labor with a, you know, auscultation, it ends up being this bizarre study from many, many years ago, you might know of this, that compared the outcomes of an Amish community yeah. in, in America with like a population, a big population of Americans and said, oh, they have you know, more IUGR babies and more negative outcomes. So what's the difference here? Oh, they don't listen to the baby's heartbeat in labour. That was the, that was what supported listening to the
1: baby's heartbeat in labour. It doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> no. And, I mean, another great one is the due date. When you look at, this was, you know, my, my PhD topic, when you go back and track back the research on the due date, you find that what we're doing today is based on a study involving 100 French women about a century ago. And you know, I mean, I'm sure they were very nice French women, but I'm not sure that their experience 100 years ago is really a valid basis to inform what we're doing for tens of hundreds of thousands of, of women today.
2: <laughs> uh, we're having a proper nerd on now. This is like i full geek. <laughs>
0: I just feel like the gooseberry that's sort of watching you two having your nerd on, and I'm like, "Ooh, I'm liking it." That sounds a bit wrong, doesn't it? <laughs> but this is like, ah, oh, this is fabulous. But just, I mean, I've I've done it not as anywhere near as much as you, but recently with a with a research paper, and then went to find the reference that they were quoting, and then I read that paper and was like. That paper's quoting another paper because it doesn't actually say anything at all. And then went back, and then I was back to 87, <laughs> 1987. And I was like, this, but this is using really old technology to look at sucking um, with the baby at the breast, and this doesn't make any sense whatsoever.
2: And it's the multi McFly midwifery.
1: <laughs> oh, back to the future. Yeah. Well, would you like me to tell you the anti D example? Yeah. yeah i mean that because, fits perfectly <laughs> so when when i was when i was writing the book um it it this was about going back to the possible risks of antenatal antidee on the unborn baby and my understanding had always been that we didn't have much data but i mean I, i'm not going to pretend that i read antidee research every day or every month through everything so <laughs> when i came to start the new book i, I went back to do a literature search you know and i went and looked at what what was new and I noticed this really interesting line in the Cochrane review, which I hadn't previously noticed. And it, what it said was that while we do know that small amounts of anti-D can cross the placenta, numerous studies, and I'm quoting this line, numerous studies <laughs> have shown that antenatal anti-D doesn't have adverse consequences for the fetus. And then it gave a reference for a paper that I'd never heard of. So I thought, oh, this is this is really interesting because You know, I do not have a vested interest in people saying no to anti-D. I don't mind what people, I just want everyone to have the information that's right for them. If There is data showing that we now know that antenatal anti-D is safe for the baby. Brilliant. I'm going to be shouting all over about that. It would be great to be able to tell people, yes, look, we've now looked at this really carefully and we've got evidence that they've got no harm. I'll, I'll give you the spoiler alert now and tell you that's not the conclusion that I've come to, <laughs> Just I don't want you to get overexcited. Because when I looked at that paper, I found that the the numerous studies, well, so there were a couple that were like about 40 years old that didn't even mention safety and just referenced each other, which, you know, kind of Rachel's already said that sort of happened. I know it sounds crazy, but I hope, we, I hope we're showing that, it, you know, it's more common than you think. Now, one of them was a really interesting paper. In which the author was raising concerns about the safety. The, the author was really concerned and, and like me was arguing that we should be looking at the safety. But I mean that hardly proved the safety because this is a doctor who was saying you know actually folks we need to look into this before we recommend it to pregnant women. He was concerned, um, as am I, about the longer-term implications of giving immunoglobulin. So then so what else was it there was a there was a small retrospective study which confirmed that antenatal anti-D didn't increase pregnancy loss that's great to know but not really what we were concerned about and then and then one of the British research studies um, which I actually already mentioned earlier in the podcast where the researchers confirmed that antenatal anti didn't have an effect on APRAS scores or mortality um, but as I said before no one was ever really suggesting that antenatal might affect mortality or APSAR scores or these short-term outcomes, it's great that we've got that data to know it doesn't, but people are more concerned about whether it affects the medium or long-term outcomes. You know, does it affect the immune system? Does it make a difference if the baby is rhesus positive or, or rhesus negative? What would happen if we did a prospective study and followed babies to see what happened? And of course, We don't know because none of that has been done. And yet here we are in the Cochrane Review quoting a paper which says that numerous studies demonstrate the safety of antenatal D. Um, And and I'm I'm not, again, I'm not here to say that I think that antenatal anti-D is a terrible or dangerous thing. I'm simply saying that we don't know. We don't know that because we haven't done the studies to find out. And I think it's really important to be truthful about that and I'm hoping that that illustrates why, you know, just because it's in the Cochrane Review or just because it's anywhere and it's got a reference doesn't mean you shouldn't just look into that for yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. I think that's such a great point that we need to be thinking about more. And often we don't because, because it's so time-consuming and it's not everyone's favourite hobby. It's not <laughs> Sarah and Rachel on the case hobby um so thank
1: you for doing that hobby for us if I come back um, as you said if I come back I want that I'm not coming back until you've got that jingle made just so you know what you want it more professional than that that was pretty professional (laughs) actually you can we can do it like that it's just you need to be able to like press a button like in radio shows and like we just plays your voice singing that jingle I want that on an Instagram story so that we can share it with Rachel's swipe up link Brilliant, And then you can have it as like your ring tune on your yes. phone.
0: Oh, Absolutely. my God. Who wouldn't want perfect. that? That's for sure. You can have it as like podcast merch. Brilliant. <laughs> Bringing you on as our um, marketing director. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> then I want a theme tune for all three of us. That's another podcast.
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Well, I I want to ask you about how you got Michelle O'Don to write your forward for the book. (laughs) Yeah, because I, um, I also have a habit. I won't say it's a hobby because it's not a hobby. I also have a habit of being um, socially awkward around important people. (laughs) My Michelle O'Don story is well, well. This wasn't socially awkward. It was when I met him. So when I was a student midwife. I wrote an honours dissertation on male midwives. And as part of my research for that, I emailed Michelle Adonk because that's like really cheeky thing to do, and said to him, so you say that fathers probably shouldn't be in the birth room. Well, how come all the photographs of women giving birth, you're in the birth room with them? <laughs> bless his cotton socks. He actually wrote back to me <laughs> and said, you know, explained and said, you know, you're right. And, you know, I often spend a lot of time in the kitchen, but then women asked me to come in at the end and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, years and years later, I saw him at a conference and I went over to get a book signed and was being all awkward and things and went, um, Oh, you probably don't remember. <laughs> I sent you an email when I was a student midwife <laughs> and told him the story. And I think he just looked at me like, what? <laughs> I don't remember. Who are you? And then my Ina May moment was, I got in the lift with Ina May at a conference and I'm going, say something, say something, say something as we're going up in this list. Say something, say something. The doors opened, Ina May got out, doors shut again. <laughs> 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 I
1: not anyway tell us about michelle (laughs) adorn so okay so well when i first published my research on anti-d this was even before just just like a year before the first book was so completely out of left field um and nobody had nobody had questioned it before and it was you know it it was a really kind of sacred thing that i was challenging um and it was a bit shocking in the in the world of midriffery, and so so a lovely editor who was involved in You know, getting my first article ready for publication. She said, "Well, you know what? This this is going to be, you know, kind of a bit a bit out of left field. So maybe it's a good idea if we get some commentaries on this, which you you may know is a common thing to do in in medical and midwifery journals. That you know, if you're getting people to talk about research, putting it into context. So, you know, she said, maybe we should get some commentaries on this and publish those at the same time to give it a bit of context." Me, I mean michelle and i and i may were often i mean we often would speak together at conferences at the time and since i mean not that anyone's doing any conferences at the moment but so i so i, I phoned him up and said okay so you know because he had been really interested in my research when you know he'd sat in you know waiting for his turn to speak and there i was wittering on about anti-d and he'd been really interested Um, and said, wow, nobody's asked these questions before. And they were similar to the questions that he likes to ask. You know, he likes to kind of dig back and say, you know, I mean, one of the questions he he asks a lot is, what what are the optimum conditions for birth? And what would go on if we didn't interfere? And that's, you know, that's not entirely dissimilar to some of the questions I was asking about anti-D. You know, is this, is sensitization an an inevitable thing or is it to some extent brought about by um, intervention and I will say I don't think it's wholly brought about by intervention but those are the questions that I was asking and so so I phoned him up and I said look I'm publishing this research and the editor said you know that that she feels that probably this would be useful to have a commentary and, and would you be open to writing that and he said yes and he wrote this this lovely piece to to go with my research that got published with that Research and this was oh I mean I this was twenty years ago, um, and I mean I don't and that was great and it did help it put into context and the editor herself wrote a piece as well so so that was brilliant. But I mean, I don't normally have forewords in these kinds of books. You know, I've got the series of books that I have about different interventions, and I I don't normally get people to write forewords, but he's he'd been such a part of that journey with me, and and Sharon and I have continued to speak together for 20 years and I mean he actually does the same thing to me that we just did with Rachel and I talking about hobbies there are things I say that he really thinks people should hear so he will ask questions from the audience very pointed questions because he wants me to say a particular thing you know so so we've been on this journey together and so I I, when I decided to write this book and I was halfway through and I remembered the commentary so I phoned him up again and because obviously we've not seen each other we've also both been we're not very far away, but we're both locked down. And I said, okay, so this is what I'm doing. Would you be open to writing a foreword for this book? And he said, Yes, which is great. And then, and then a couple of hours later he emailed me and he said, he said, Well, do you know what? He said, I read, I reread what I wrote for you 20 years ago, and I want to say the same thing again because it's all still true. And you know, and, and I want to, you know, and I want to say that it is all still true, which for both of us. You know, adds this really interesting and quite poignant element to the conversation. Um, you know, because some things have changed and some really haven't at all. And it, so it, it it does feel really poignant because we've published his original foreword in the book, and he just added one sentence which says, "I wrote this as an introduction to Sarah's research on anti-d twenty years ago. My words are still just as relevant today." Wow. Um and that's the thing because there are some more things that we know we do offer anti-d at more in more situations now than we did 20 years ago we do have some more information to share with women we you know one of the biggest um positive things as i said has been the the um the rhesus testing in in pregnancy which means that a proportion of women will know their baby's rhesus negative and they don't have to think about anti-d at all but in so many ways we haven't moved on and that's Mm -hmm. what is really frustrating that we we have more and more women and families with all of these questions you know and and i can you know and i can write a whole book and say well this is the evidence this is the evidence but at so many points it's really frustrating because i have to say I'm really sorry but I can't actually tell you the exact answer to this you know and that that's really really frustrating mm.
2: you were probably at this conference Sarah um in fact you were at this conference um when he was presenting about water birth and I was asked to present with him which then sent me in a real nervous kind of spin and while I was sitting in the audience he actually called me up and I thought oh, it's because you know I don't know my you're awesome because, because i awesome and
1: Michelle O'Donnell would go I totally I, need yeah. Rachel Museum
2: with me so he called me out the audience and he kind of said can you just stand here and he said turn to the side and I turned to the side and he said as you can see here like pointed at my nose the large nose like the proboscis <laughs> monkey like to demonstrate how similar humans are to <laughs> proboscis monkeys because of my large nose <laughs> <laughs>
0: I feel so bad for laughing at that. And I know the story and I'm
1: sorry it always makes me laugh. But I love you and I love your nose. You <laughs> notice your nose, but now I want you to turn around so I can see it. I don't think it looks like a hibiscus monkey at all. We could do a monkeys theme though, because of course the rhesus factor was named after rhesus monkeys. Oh, so this could just be it the, was. this could be the monkey podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's your photos, Katie. Go find them apes are us and I can do this oh that's very impressive <laughs> should we screenshot that and put it in Rachel's swipe up story you definitely should have
2: but do not send me any photos of orangutans because they scare me and freak me out right this is something you don't necessarily have to put this on the podcast Kate thank not. you very much because otherwise I'd be inundated with pictures of orangutans, oh right? I have, I can't stand them. They really freak oh. me out. So anyone who knows that sends me photographs of bloody orangutans. I haven't you send for me? ages.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, Just what things. am I going to be doing this I weekend? Wait. It's raining. I'm going to be a grown up and not send you photos of orangutans. Thank you. I mean, that doesn't mean I won't cross stitch you one for Christmas, but I won't send it. Them- <laughs> Oh,
0: please do. <laughs> Ooh, I can make you one. I can make you a sculpture one. Ooh, it could sit your desk, like that goes in the
1: oven.
0: Exactly. I mean, she's got Sculptured Johnny. She's got
2: the, the birthing head one. I do not need an orangutan. Thank you. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good place to end, isn't it? <laughs>
0: Great. It's going to have to go to the podcast now because I can't edit that out. Sorry. So thank you, Sarah, for giving us a whirlwind tour of monkey theory. And um, <laughs> thank you, Sarah, for being on this podcast and just giving us an absolute marvellous insight into Anti-D, the world of anti-D and research and delving into research and being with us has just been a pleasure for me and i know for rachel it's been fun informative and my goodness i want to bring you back and i cannot wait to put this episode out
2: and Thank if you me. want to learn more from sarah sarah does online courses um check them out on her website because they are amazing i've heard fantastic feedback so if you want to know how to do tracking back of research and working research out them,
1: detective, yeah.
2: <laughs> research detective it comes with a theme tune it does now (laughs) and and go and check it out
1: well that's been fab i've had a lovely time thank you very much buy the book amen buy the book it's coming out when is it coming out that's how we need to end goodness how did we forget that (laughs) well i don't have an exact date but my hope is and i don't know when the podcast is going out of course but the the book we're planning for it to come out in june and I don't have an exact date, but I do have a mailing list. So if anyone would like to know or we'll keep in touch, they can just pop to my website. And there's a blue box on my website that you can put your email address in, and and then you'll get all my emails and also our our free month, monthly birth information update newsletter. So that's um you know that's when people can know when it's ready. And also, like Rachel, I'm on Instagram, um, and so I will there will be pictures of it all over Instagram. I'm I'm at dr sarah wickham with no h on the sarah so but thank you very much for having me i've had a lovely time it's um definitely the most fun morning i've had all week
0: Woohoo. <laughs> thanks for being in the cauldron sarah
1: it's been a pleasure we
0: hope you enjoyed this episode what a fabulously full cauldron of info and the good news is Sarah's book, Anti-D Explained, is out now. You can pop over to her website, sarahwithoutanh, wickham.com, to get your copy. And of course, follow her on Instagram for all her daily insights. As always, details are in our links and on Instagram. I'm also starting a new slot here at the end where I'm going to take the opportunity to say thank you for those utterly wonderful comments you are putting over on Apple Podcasts. And I want to read out the occasional one or two. The first one that really caught my eye is from Eerie Midwife. And Eerie writes, I had almost given up on midwifery and birth podcasts finally a woman-centered no disclaimers podcast centering the power and magic of female biology with joy and humor and without pretense thank you thank you for your wonderful review and this one comes from my silver cutie and they say love your nuggets great we love a golden nugget here or is it a nugget of poo well only you and me and rachel can decide Katie and Rachel from a student midwife, thank you for helping to nurture my own woman-centered philosophy, for the way I want to provide midwifery care to my patients. Your wit, passion, singing, and golden nuggets make me a thousand percent sure I'm heading in the right direction. I had always wanted and planned. Thank you, my silver QT. And thank you to all of you. There are some amazing comments on there, and it really, it really does warm our hearts. And it's so fantastic because not only is it really lush, but it helps get the message out there. And it helps the podcast get recognised and picked up by other people who may not have had someone down the street telling them, hey, listen to this. And lastly, before you go, I also need to tell you that soon we will have our very own Patreon page. Yes, we figured it out. It's not a paraben or a paraffin page. And that will be where you can head over and have a look at what's going on for you there. As this gets up and going, I'll post about it on Instagram too. So thanks for being with us. And of course, as always, I'll leave you with something. But this is actually for Sarah. Rachel and Sarah are on the hunt for guidelines because they're the research detectives. Rachel and Sarah. wondering which of my courses is for you breastfeeding and lactation the fundamentals has been designed for everyone working in the birthing field or those on their journey to becoming breastfeeding specialists or IBCLCs this course gives you seven hours of CPD and is packed with reflective learning case studies and some pretty tough at times quizzes to make sure this stuff sticks It also means you can meet me monthly in my live Q&A. This is my course that I hope will fill in the gaps that traditional breastfeeding education has left out. I want you completing this, feeling confident to support any breastfeeding or lactation challenge of those in your care. But wait, I have another course called The Feeding Couch. Who's this for? Currently, around 80-96% to of women decide to breastfeed during their pregnancy, but by just 8 weeks after birth, a third to almost 50% of those women have stopped breastfeeding. And of those women who stopped, 80% say they stopped breastfeeding before they wanted to. Learning about breastfeeding during pregnancy has been shown to improve breastfeeding self-confidence and improve the rate of exclusive breastfeeding in the short and the long term. I believe every mum should be able to choose how she wants to feed her baby and for how long. Knowledge is power. That's why I created The Feeding Couch, designed to be watched during pregnancy or for new mums and parents who may be struggling right now with breastfeeding. The content is in step-by-step, binge-worthy whilst pregnant or for those most tired of days postpartum. Totally easy to find exactly what you need and dip in and out when you need a breastfeeding answer quickly. And for you, beautiful podcast listener, there is a 10% discount off both courses when you use the code POD10, that's P-O-D-10, at checkout. To find out more, hop on over to my website, katiejames.site, and have a look at the incredible content waiting for your lucky peepers.